You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Kate Flanders, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. I was having a spiritual crisis. It was August 2018, and I was questioning the last four decades of my life. You see, my father died when I was eight, and he was a prominent oncologist. And all I wanted to do growing up was be a physician like him. So this became an innate part of my identity, not just my identity, but the way my family and friends saw me. And it was wonderful to go to college and medical school and become this physician. But the problem was, as the years passed, I realized it wasn't filling my cup anymore. It wasn't the me that I thought I was, and I was lost. Enter the personal finance world. A few years earlier, I had discovered financial independence. I had looked at my numbers and my investments and realized that I had enough money. I didn't need to really work anymore. Now, instead of making me jubilant, it actually made me quite anxious. This idea of walking away from being a physician scared the heck out of me. And so picture 2018, I decide to go to a meeting, a Camp Fi, Camp Financial Independence, and I was on the cusp of opting out. I was going to leave medicine and pursue a very different life of writing and podcasting and public speaking. And I felt like I had to go to this meeting to build up my courage. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. I left and slowly started subtracting all those things I didn't like about being a physician. I created a new life, a life of writing, a life of podcasting, a life of public speaking, a life of communicating, things that really filled my soul. But interestingly enough, at that Camp Fi, I also met someone who I got the innate sense was also in the midst of a transition. You see, I have the unique ability usually to sense what's going on with people. And often I get a strong feeling for what they need from me. So I met this person and I could tell that she was in the midst of a transition that she was about to opt out. In fact, she eventually would write the book on opting out. But strangely enough, I sensed she didn't need anything from me. So we didn't really have that many conversations. We certainly didn't talk about anything really intimate or personal But when I started my own podcast a few months later, I thought about having her as one of my first guests on the show. And I went and I looked for her blog and she had stopped writing. A few days after that Camp Fi, she had put up her last post. And I inquired with her friends and found out that she was stepping away a little bit from personal finance, stepping away from social media. And I filed it in the back of my mind that this is a person I would really like to have a conversation with on the podcast. And I looked back every few months to see if she had resurfaced. And recently, she did. This conversation, this conversation has been two years in the making. And I'm so excited to be having it today. Kate Flanders is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Year of Less. Her latest book, Adventures in Opting Out, hit stores last month. Kate, I'm so happy to be here with you today. Oh my gosh, that was an amazing intro. And I'm so glad that we're going to have this conversation. As I mentioned, I believe both you and I were at a transition point 
during that August 2018 Camp Fi meeting. I know I was. I was in the midst of getting ready to leave medicine. And based on the fact that you had stopped writing on your blog and in a sense disappeared a little bit, I felt like you were to tell me about what was going on in your life at that time. Okay, a lot. And I almost just want to say like, thank you for witnessing that because in a way, not that I've forgotten about it, but I think when I think of big opt-outs, sometimes I do forget the blogging and, and all of that was one of them. So a lot was going on. So 2018 was the year that The Year of Less came out. It came out in January and I went, first of all, just, I really started that whole journey from a place of not feeling like I was worthy of it. So the book deal, publishing the book, there, there was just a lot that went on with that and yeah, not believing I was worthy and, and really not knowing what to do with that. And then I think because of that, I had really had no boundaries around how to handle the launch. And so I said yes to everything. I did something like 110 interviews in like four months. I think you can also appreciate this. Like there, there were things in that book that I had never even talked to a therapist about. And there was some really heavy stuff in there, like very personal stuff. And I hadn't really done any actual healing around it. Like I'm a pretty self-aware person, but I hadn't sort of let myself feel the feelings that comes along. Like you can kind of name the feeling, but to actually feel them is very different. And I think, yeah, there was something that happened kind of towards the end of that, like in April, May, 2018, where I was like really broken down. And honestly, by June, my mental health was severely suffering I was not in a good place. Yeah, it's actually making me a little emotional to like remember it. <laughs> I was I was not in a good place then. Yeah, I had to step back. I had to step back for a lot of reasons. I think one was really to take care of myself first. But the the blogging piece, the opting out piece of it was really scary because like first of all, the I had never I never started a blog with the intention of, oh, one day I'm going to write a book. But then once you get a book and like all those things to sort of walk away from any of it, it, it was, there really was this feeling of like, A, am I allowed? Am I even allowed to do that? And that definitely came from the worthy piece. Am I allowed to walk away from this? Am I allowed to set that kind of boundary? But two, what happens if I do walk away from everything? Because like, will I lose all my followers? Will everyone just sort of forget about me? Will that be the only book that I get to write? Yeah. And just, and, and, and the question marks of like, am I okay with that? Am I okay with that? And I, I was really struggling even because we met at that camp, but even being asked to speak at that, I was so unsure even of what to talk about at that point. And if I remember correctly, I chose a really like kind of surface level conversation to have because I was not at a place that I felt I could go deep and, and that I would be okay. Like that I would have sort of the self-soothing, like the techniques to kind of get through that. So I remember that like that summer was very strange for me. Transition periods like that are like when you're questioning are really strange. I think you do show up differently. Because <laughs> I probably did need a lot and I probably could have benefited from support or good conversations, but I think I was so in the thick of it that I just like I couldn't. I couldn't do it then. I want to talk about this idea of worthiness. It's a theme that comes up in your writing over and over again. One of the things that was hard for me when I learned that I was financially independent is that I felt great anxiety because all of a sudden this idea of leaving medicine was possible and it never had been before. And that was scary. When you look at what happened in your life, you published this book, people were asking you to come speak. There was incontrovertible proof that you were worthy. And just like me, instead of making having that make you feel good, it actually was anxiety provoking. Yeah, uh, in so many ways. I think some people, sort of that external validation is enough. 
And I think something I've, I'm really learning about myself over the years is that it's not for me. It, it just, it doesn't feel like enough for me. Having someone else say that I'm, I'm a good writer or I'm, you know, I, I wrote something that they connected with even that, like now I can like, because I'm, I'm at a healthier place of sort of just like loving and taking care of myself. Now I can take that in and see it with the perspective that I, I could not before, but yeah, I, there, so there's, I will say a second aspect to it with the year of less specifically, which is that I wrote about an experiment where I, you know, didn't buy anything and kind of got rid of honestly, almost all of my belongings. But I also had a lot of feelings around the minimalism space, the minimalism movement. I really don't identify with it in so many ways. Like, yes, I choose to live with less personally. That is actually so much more now about my mental health than anything else. But I really am like uncomfortable with this idea of like, let's just tell everyone to like get rid of all of their stuff which not only is incredibly privileged that we can even do that but it's also not an option for so many people and or you can declutter and not learn anything about yourself in the process so I really was like there there's so much more to this conversation that people are not having and the way that it's approached most often I I was like deeply uncomfortable with. So I was also like straddling this line of being like, am I okay that I wrote a book in this space when I feel so much differently about it than sort of the majority of the minimalism books that are out there? Before we started, I mentioned to you this idea that the year of less flowed very naturally into adventures and opting out. And I'm not sure you bought it, but let me try to put that into (laughs) words it seems to me that the year of less was about decluttering your stuff. Opting out very much feels like decluttering your mind. And as you talk Mm -hmm. about this relationship with the book and not sure if you were comfortable with this minimalism, it almost flows directly into learning how to opt out of those things you don't like and then Mm. opting in to what fits you. So to me, those books actually really fit well together, kind of going from stuff. And again, if you want to draw the parallel with my story, I had to get over the money issue so that I could find identity. And for a lot of people, they have to get rid of the stuff, the clutter Mm -hmm. physically in their life before they can really start addressing kind of the mental health stuff and like who they want to be. Yeah. And that actually does make so much sense. I think as a writer too, one thing I I can say about adventures that I didn't feel necessarily about the year of less is it feels incredibly aligned with who I am today. And whereas I think advent or with the year of less, I think I was sort of writing something that people said I could write. Because what happened with that book was also just really different that I finished the shopping ban and was approached by a bunch of literary agents saying like, do you want to write a book about this? And so that's what I mean. Like from the beginning, I was just sort of like, okay, yes. Like, (laughs) and I'm so glad that I did, especially too, because there are things in there that I know resonate with people and I know have been helpful. So I'm, I'm so glad that I did write it, but it wasn't like at the end of the day, it was someone else's idea. Like all the personal stuff, it wasn't, but sort of you were, you did this thing. Do you want to write a book about it? And you're like, sure. Whereas for adventures, it was actually, it was so different. It was like, I noticed things that were coming up and I had ideas. And then all throughout even just the writing process, me continually coming back being like, I'm not writing this just for other people. I have to write the book that I wish existed. And and so it was like me, I'm writing like to myself. Like I wish I'd had this book 10 or 15 years ago and that has to be good enough. And so no matter what happens with it, I know that I wrote something that is very aligned. And I can feel like at peace with that decision. Let's jump into the book. You know, that joy and insight is clear in your writing. And I want to quote you here. This is a paragraph from your book. You say, but the most honest thing I can say now as an adult is that I didn't have the confidence to try new things, to venture into the unknown and see what it might hold for me. I was afraid of taking a wrong step and looking stupid, afraid of falling and actually hurting myself. But basically, I was afraid of being bad at the outdoors. 
The reason why I picked this quote is the book really draws this metaphor with hiking. And I think it's a very apt metaphor. Tell me why that felt right to you while writing this book about opting out. Mm, I mean, it, it felt like the idea before even the, the chapters came into place, right? Like I essentially was out for um, a hike one day by myself and noticed how many times I was having to tell myself to keep going. Like all I wanted to do was quit. And I was, I was by myself. So then the other, like the story in your head is, well, no one would know. Like no one would know if I turned around right now. I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I can quit. It would be fine. But I also knew the other piece. Like the other story is like, you'll feel better when, when you've done this. Like, and also to stop constantly giving up on myself. Like I know, A, it's a hike I'd done hundreds of times. So I literally knew I could do it. But, but even still something I've done hundreds of times, there's still a voice in my head that tells me to quit sometimes. And I think for me personally, I thought, I bet you no one would know that this is what hiking feels like for me. Because I bet that people would look at my Instagram and just think like, I love hiking. I just love it. You know, it's just amazing. And I just go outside and I like run up a mountain and everything is great. And, and that is almost never true. Like I, I am so glad when I do actually finish one, but hiking is really hard for me. I am not like, first of all, sort of naturally athletic. And I'm also like, like the way that you just quoted, I am, I am constantly probably forever, maybe, maybe not, but probably forever will be working on removing perfectionism tendencies that I have. And they come up in, in all kinds of things. And, and hiking is just one of them. So it just seemed like uh, not only an, like you said, sort of an apt metaphor, but I think something that, yeah, I'm like, it, it not only seemed like an apt metaphor for me, but I think could show an actual example of like, not just an opt out, but like regular life event or like a regular thing that we do that I, I actually do struggle with. They're not easy for me. The way that opt-outs are not easy for me. They're a massive struggle for most of it. <laughs> and in fact, we face lots of opt-outs. In the book, you talk about hiking. You talk about the nomadic life, which is a big part of the book and how you opt out of the traditional living style. But I feel like we have to talk about alcohol too, because opting out of alcohol seems to me your big, great opt-out that happened way before the rest of this, I'll quote you again. You said, quitting drinking, which taught me everything I would need to know in order to opt out of everything else. Why was alcohol your nemesis? Mm. Well, first of all, I will say, and most actually for medical reasons, which I think you'll appreciate, I don't identify as an alcoholic because I was not chemically dependent on it, but I absolutely was a binge drinker and I absolutely was someone who used alcohol basically to get through every single social situation possible. I did not know how to have one drink. Basically, almost every time I drank, I would get blackout drunk, even if it was just I missed maybe the last hour of the night. Like I always drank way too much. And I just, you know, I think if we go back to the worthiness, the confidence stuff, like I just did not ever truly deep down trust that I was good enough as I was. And so I actually, if we talked about external validation, some things I did used to enjoy was that people would say things to me like, you're so fun when you drink. Like, I love drunk Kate. She's so funny or she's so sweet or wh whatever. At, like, and, and people seem to really enjoy partying with me. And so that was the one thing that I was good at. Like in high school, I wasn't really good, so-called good at anything. I wasn't good at any sports. I could play some kind of okay, but I wasn't great at them. I was good at reading, which is a very solo activity. <laughs> like I read a lot of books, but I was not good at anything sort of on an external facing way. And, but drinking and partying was one. Drinking was the thing that not only was I good at, also because I, I never got sick. You know, I could drink my guy friends under the table and I had this weird just sense of, yeah, this is this thing I'm good at. Like, why wouldn't I keep doing it? And people like me when I'm doing it. And so it was really hard to let go of it. And, and truly, like you quoted it, but it is, it was the hardest opt out in a lot of ways. Also because it's 
still shows up almost eight years later, not as being one that I wish I drank. I'm, I'm past that or feel I'm past that, but that it's still such a socially acceptable thing that still eight years later, you feel like the odd one out. Feeling like the odd one out is a very common thing. I think when you're considering opting out, you said people would tell you, I love drunk Kate, but on some level, they'd also say, I love work Kate, or I love Mm -hmm. personal finance Kate. And it's hard to step away from those things that other people have predefined you as. And I see this coming up over and over again. It's essential to the process of actually getting to who you are and what you want and I feel like alcohol is alcohol taught that to you and was the stepping stone to doing some of these other opt-outs. Maybe it was yeah. the first step. Yeah. Well, and with alcohol too, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how you can sort of be at the base for a very long time. Like you can have this inkling or just know that you're, you are going to change paths at some point. I remember talking about quitting drinking when I was like 20 years old. Like I was so young and I had this idea that at some point I would not drink alcohol anymore. But I remember it was rare, but I would occasionally mention it to say a friend or a boyfriend specifically. And just being met with things like, that's stupid. Everybody drinks a little bit. Like, why would you even think about that? And so it took years for me myself to get to a place of maybe you think it's stupid, but I know that I need this. But it definitely, that was years, years of thinking about it and then finally taking action on it. Yeah. It's a good point because when you do opt out, there's all sorts of people, whether they mean to or not, who try to keep you from doing it. We see that in alcohol all the time. The, the person who doesn't drink at a party is always given a lot of trouble. Oh, here, just it's one drink. But it's more complicated than that when you decide to opt out of a job or if you decide not to have children or if you Mm. decide to live a nomadic lifestyle, there are always people out there who are trying to keep you in their vision of you. How do you deal with that? I mean, in the beginning, it was really hard. (laughs) I think that, like I could say where I'm just at now, but I think it's more helpful to say things that what it was like in the early days. So I probably used to, in conversation, do a lot of things that would appease other people or make them feel better about my choices, right? So giving them a script of, don't worry, like, I'm still the same person. I just like, don't do that one little thing. Or just like finding ways to meet them so that it's like, they're not, they're not worried that you're going to leave. Or you would might say like, eh, I'm just like trying it for a little bit. And sometimes that is true, but sometimes you're saying it just because you want them to kind of leave you alone. So I do feel like there was sort of a lot of appeasing or people pleasing in the beginning of trying to almost just comfort other people rather than just say the truth. Now it's taken a long time, but I think the first thing that helped is having a massive perspective shift and really understanding that the majority of the time, what people are saying is just what they would be saying to themselves, right? So it's just them expressing their own fears or the voices that would be coming up for them of why they wouldn't do the thing that you're thinking of doing. Even ones like, don't you miss alcohol? That, that is them. Do I miss alcohol? No. <laughs> like, no. And, and, but that is someone else's concern. That's what they're worried about. If someone makes comments about your finances, oh, haven't you thought about this? Or like, what if it's a waste of money or blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's my decision to make. You're commenting on what, why you might not make the decision, but it's up to me to figure out if I'm okay with that or not. And so I wrote this line in the book, but just like people can ultimately only see as far for you as they see for themselves. And that is not easy, like I said in the beginning, but when you can get to that place where you can see it with that perspective, it's a lot easier to not take it so personally. I think also if you can get to a place where you're not taking it personally, which would for me often also show up as maybe not outwardly being defensive, but internally I would feel defensive. Like I would feel like I had to defend my choices. When you can get to a place where you're not taking it personally, I think you also then get to the place where you can step into conversations, right? Like, and you can actually be a little more comfortable just speaking your truth. What is true for me? And like, and just saying, yeah, you know what? Those are concerns. 
I am kind of worried about that stuff and I'm not going to let it stop me from at least trying and just like being a little more confident when you can see it's not actually about you. And speaking about defending yourself, one of the hardest things about opting out is when you hit a big hurdle and you fall and then have to listen to the I told you so's. Going back to the book, you talk about your move towards a nomadic life and a few months into your trip to the United Kingdom, you ended up taking a plane back home. Tell me about how falling on your face, in a sense, fits into the opt-out process. Oh, it's huge. And I can look back and say it's happened, maybe not with every single one, but with a lot where it's maybe not always falling fully on your face, but you you stumble, right? Like some kind of hurdle has come up and you don't quite know how to handle it. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is the idea that when this comes up, if you, especially if it's your first opt-out of any kind, this is sort of the moment when it's really easy to self-sabotage, right? It is actually very easy And for like actual, like psychological reasons, it's very easy to self-sabotage for the simple reason that you do want to belong again. So when you hit this hurdle, it can seem like what your, what your friends or family's concerns were, oh my gosh, they were right. I should just go back to them. It will just be easier if I go back to what I was doing before. And not only is, is it so easy, but the, the problem with it is if you do it, you're actually completely abandoning yourself in the process, right? Like you are abandoning your voice, your choices, your autonomy, like the way that you want to live in this world, but it's very easy. And so with drinking, I would say examples of that for me were there were times when I would think about, I'm not going to drink for say, I don't know, a month. I'm just going to see how it goes. And then I would give up at some point and just go back. And then I would drink for like six months. And then I'd be like, well, maybe I'll stop again. Like every one of those is self-sabotage. Cause I could have, I absolutely could have not drank again, or I could have like done it that one time and then been like, Hey, you can learn something from this and just carry on with sobriety. Like you can learn and carry on, but I would always slip deep back into the, what I was doing before with travel Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because it's not that it was like maybe emotionally or super emotionally difficult. Other than that, I had said goodbye to people and been like, see you at Christmas, right? And it was the first week of May and I'm thinking about going home and did go home, right? And so I'm sitting here thinking like, what about all the people who might have been questioning this? Like, what are they going to say? if I'm back already. And I got all kinds of comments, questions like, oh, did something bad happen? I had assumptions that my mental health had taken a dive, which also I will just say like to speak on behalf of anyone, like if you're actually worried that someone's mental health has taken a dive, you support them. You don't attack them for that. But yeah, all kinds of comments. Something's gone wrong. I ran out of money already, (laughs) like anything. And I really did struggle because it was something I had wanted. I really did struggle with the friends who typically come at me with those like questions or judgments. So I didn't struggle to tell my dad or my sister and just say like, it was honestly like I should have planned more. There are should haves. I should have done a few things differently and then this wouldn't have happened. And I'd be like, so it kind of sucks, but I, I need to figure out how to actually do this because I do want to keep going. And so then family being like, okay, great. Like, you know, maybe that you've got to look at booking things in a different way than you had been or risk picking cities that you may not end up liking. That was a huge concern for me was I was like, I was so afraid to say book a long-term stay at somewhere for three, four or five months and not like it. And so I just wouldn't book it. And I would, I had had this magical idea that I would just go and figure things out. And actually my mental health cannot handle that. I don't like traveling that way. So I learned a lot, but I, I definitely came home and noticed that I was pulling back a bit from having conversations with the friends who I knew would just come at me with, with a lot of stuff. And I definitely, I had, a, I had one friend in particular, she listed like five things that she would be worried that people would be thinking like, and first of all, it has nothing to do with me. Those, <laughs> those are 
concerns you're worried about, again, going back to that. But then I also thought you are then having all these thoughts about me. And that's not right. It's not right to just make assumptions about people. So what I do think that happened last year for the first time is that I got a lot more comfortable speaking up in that moment and just saying like, hey, you know what? Like, I actually don't feel great about it. Like, everything is fine. Just tell people I'm fine. Everything's good. But I don't feel great about that decision. And I'm just taking some time to like think about it. And so I kind of rejig my plans and and figure things out and and just let it go. And if people want to keep saying things, they can. I did find in speaking up honestly that way, most people just dropped it. Like, oh, like if you don't give them something to keep going at you for and you sort of express a very clear and just open and honest boundary, like, yeah, I don't really want to talk about it right now, but everything is okay. Then, then you can kind of just move on. In the first half of the show, Kate and I talk about how we opt out of different aspects of our life. After the break, we delve into how opting out can be nonlinear and, in fact, not necessarily urgent. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you looking to have more conversations like the ones you hear on the Earn and Invest podcast every Monday and Thursday? Well, if that's the case, I encourage you to go over to the Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash Earn and Invest. And join the conversation that occurs after the shows. We continue talking about our episodes. We talk about current economics, policy, the latest news, and yes, even occasionally politics. I encourage you to check out the Earn and Invest Facebook group. It's where we continue the conversation after the episode has finished. Check us out there, and I hope to see you as part of our community. Now back to the show. There's this irrational belief that opt-outs or changing your life for that matter should be both urgent and linear. And certainly one thing I learned about leaving medicine is it was neither. There were ups and downs. There were baby steps. There were steps backward. But certainly it seems that people can't grasp this idea that incremental gain is just as important as revolutionary change. Oh, my gosh. It, yeah. I mean, I, my brain just goes to like linear graphics, like everyone just <laughs> thinks like you just, this is the way it goes and can't understand, like you said, even just the like teeny steps back, because that's really all it was, right? Or or you test something out and you're not quite ready for it yet. So then someone asks you something and you say yes. And then inside you're like, oh, I wish I had said no, but okay. You just, you go through it because now you've said yes, but you learn I don't want to go in that direction. <laughs> like I actually do want to keep doing what I was doing. And, and that is just part of it. I also think that pressure that we put on not only ourselves, but others is this idea that once people make a decision, they have to make it for life. You could quit medicine and in 10 years, you might be in some different place in your life and be like, I'm going to go practice for a few more years and just help out where I can or something that interests me. You just don't know. You do not know. And, but we put people in these boxes and it's just like, you've made this decision. This is how I can identify you, leave it at that. And the thought also, because it's shown like in, in examples of like media, like if someone changes their mind, they're then portrayed as being like flaky or just kind of, yeah, they're flighty. They just kind of go with the wind. You're like, 
actually think it's just a really intentional decision. Like you're, you're making a lot of them. And I think if you're being really intentional, you will take many different paths, including some that could go back to old lives in other ways. And it's all just like, if you're doing what's right for you, it really doesn't matter what other people think, but, but then also in giving ourselves that permission, we have to give it to other people as well. And it's hard. It's hard because we're so programmed to just think like, you put people in a box. This is a decision. This is what you do. This is how I can identify you. Okay, go. <laughs> to bring it back to the hiking metaphor, there are many peaks and valleys, both intellectually and physically. And sometimes you have to go up and down a bunch of them until you find yourself in the right place. Let's talk about the right place, the end of the journey. Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote you again. You say, I've opted out enough times by now to know that when you leave the path you're on, literally or figuratively, you're going to come back to your life altered. In my earliest opt-outs, I thought you came back a different person. But what I realized after my 2019 travels is that you're still the same person. You already have everything you need inside of you. I love this quote. And for a very strange reason, it reminds me a lot of how I feel about money and personal finance. It reminds me a lot about feeling enough. And I'm wondering if this was part of that journey of your book of coming to this idea that I am enough and I always was. These are just the journeys I'm on. Yes, I think that enough is part of it, which actually that does coattail then off of the year of less. That was a huge thing by the by the end of that book was understanding that I was enough as I was. I think that the other piece of it is and probably the most important, I don't know that I ever explicitly said it in the book, but it's really about learning how to trust yourself. Like trusting that you know what is right for you. I honestly think that so much, whether it's, you know, family, friends, the media, marketing, everything we're sort of shown is that like, there's something wrong with you. Here's how we fix it here. Do this and it will make you this kind of person. And so we're almost just trained to not listen to ourselves. Like we're always looking at, at someone else's idea of us or someone else's approval. Social media plays into this, right? Like just comments and engagement online. And, and really like at the end of the day, it was like, I have wanted to travel. That is just one example. I have wanted to travel since I was a teenager, but I had all kinds of stories of why it wasn't okay for me. And at the end of the day, like, I'm the only one who gets to pick. Like, I'm the only one who knows me. No one knows me better than me. So no one knows you better than yourself. And and what I've learned through all of them, like drinking was, you know, the earliest lesson, but travel is what really showed me that. Like, no one actually gets to have a louder voice than mine. You know, you can talk to people and maybe gauge how it might affect your friendships, relationships, like what whatever your opt-out is. You can talk to people and just kind of, talk through it and depending on what they are some some opt-outs are really simple but but at the end of the day like you know you know what's right for you and I definitely learned that last year no one knows me better than I know myself so it sounds like from opting out you've learned about enough you've learned about trusting yourself tell me what you've learned about relationships and especially losing them because I know that was a big concern of yours it was a big concern of mine. And it was also the thing that sparked the idea for the book, other than my being out on my solo hike and, and wanting to quit was all the events that I did for the year of less. I noticed that there was someone at every single one who asked essentially a line of, you know, did you lose anyone? What did your friends and family think? Did you uh, miss out on social things? Like, did you ever get left behind? It's, I don't know, it was interesting noticing that when I was first answering, I was almost trying to make people feel better. So I would just say things like, oh, you know, like you might, you might like have to shift some relationships. You might just have to change what you do together. And that is true for some relationships, but the reality is that you will lose some people. Like you just do, you will not be able to take everyone with you on your new path. It doesn't happen. And that's not always your choice. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you intentionally leave people behind. But sometimes it's just that people aren't ready to get on board with you. Like they're not ready for the person that you're becoming. They liked you who you were. 
And so maybe they don't want to change your relationship. They want it to stay the same. And that's really hard. It is really hard. And that to me was the thing where I just thought, why are we not talking about this? Like what we need to be doing is talking about this more openly and honestly, because otherwise we're doing a huge disservice to anyone who we say like, oh, just change your life. And like, everything's great. Like some things are great. Getting to know myself the way that I know myself now is great, but it was really hard to lose people. I have friends who like drinking is an obvious example. I have friends who, you know, maybe they tried to get on board with the idea of like, maybe let's go for coffee instead. Maybe let's go for a walk or a hike instead. And then they pretty much like they gave up pretty quickly on that because that's not what they want to do. They want to drink together. And so I have friends who I will ask them to hang out and they just will say like, oh yeah, I'll reach out soon. You just don't hear from them. And that's hard. And it's not about you. Family also, I do find like as you grow, you can outgrow people, right? Like if you're growing and learning and changing both family and some friends, you can certainly sort of outgrow your relationships. So your relationships change quite drastically and you start to recognize that, you know, you need a lot healthier boundaries or there are things that you do and don't share with people if they're not going to be supportive of your choices. And that's hard. There's a grieving period of that. Like definitely in the last eight years, I have definitely grieved, like really deeply grieved the loss of certain relationships. And I also think in the process, if you, if you are open to it, and I would only encourage people, like if you are opting out, be very open to the people you are going to cross paths with, because it's easy, especially if you're hurting and grieving something, it's really easy to feel closed off or to close yourself off. But the people that you cross paths with, I find now the friendships I have and the connections that I've made are so much more meaningful. And I also think there's a something I've been reflecting on a lot lately. One of the most beautiful pieces of it is that there's a lot less attachment in our friendships, meaning like we could talk twice a year and there's still someone I would say is a really good friend of mine because we just get each other and we let each other live our lives in a way that's right for us. And then we come together whenever it's right. And it's so good. So I think I've had some comments or from the book specifically, people were like, you have a lot of friends in a lot of places. And I'm like, yeah, but also there are a lot of people that I will only see them, especially depending on where they are in the world. I'll probably only see them a few times ever in our lifetimes. And I'm like, of course they're a friend. I may not see them often, but like our connection is so beautiful for whatever it is and however often we will get to see each other. So things are, they're really different if you're open to it. Like everything does shift, but I think there's a real freedom, especially in the people that you can, that you can find if you're open to it, like finding people who just accept you as you are and who don't try and change you. It's so beautiful. And they are out there. I love this idea that it's okay to let go of people who are not emotionally ready for who you're becoming. And the thing I've also found is that sometimes those people come back around when they are emotionally ready and it can be wonderful to have them come back into your life. We are talking about adventures in opting out. Kate Flanders, one of the interesting things you said about your book is you said that you see it more as an emotional guide as opposed to a how-to book. Why do you think you took this direction? Hmm, I think it's really important to me to sort of never give like an exact here's 10 steps that will work because those will not work for everyone. So that has always felt important. It even felt important with the shopping ban, right? Like I sort of talked about here are things that I did, but I wasn't going to say to someone like do exactly these things and it will work out this way, but here are tips that helped, but leave it at that. But with this one, I felt even more like, it, I cannot give someone the exact 10 steps that we go through because it it will not always look like that. I will also say that's because every opt-out I've done has not looked exactly the same. I do think the same emotional things have come up, but at different times in different sort of extremes, like some it's a dollar in one area, but it's a lot more extreme in another area. But actually going back to that, what you mentioned about sort of taking some steps back and then going forward, like all of that, every opt-out looks really different. So some might have this kind of clear, here's a peak, here's a valley, here's a peak. And oh yeah, maybe you're kind of done, but it could go on for a long time like that. 
or it might, you might be in the valley for a really long time, or you might hit the peak pretty early and like, it just totally worked for you. (laughs) And I think the most important piece though, is to include the ones that I know are true and what have been true of friends of mine that I've spoken with, mostly just to prepare people. Because I often think that, especially in the self-help space, we sort of give these like, here's three things and then and then you can change all your habits or whatever. And if we don't talk about the emotional, the emotional aspect of it, that is why people go backwards because they're not prepared for what is going to come up. So if you can read something and actually prepare a little bit for what the emotional aspect of it is going to look like, maybe it means you'll be in the base longer. Like it's going to take you longer to actually opt out. But if you can opt out and know that some ups and downs are coming, especially on the emotional side of things, I I just think it leaves people more prepared. And also so that hopefully they can know how to work through it and keep going. And even if that includes shifting things or whatever, but keep going and keep making intentional decisions along the way. You and I met through the lens of personal finance. We were at the Camp Fi, Camp Financial Independence. One thing I found that as I go farther and farther in this journey, I think less and less about money and wealth. Tell me how opting out has changed the way you look at money and wealth. Hugely, hugely. So on like a very practical sense, I think as the years have gone on, and this this was a big shift, especially from going from having a job to being self-employed, was I basically never budget anymore. Not, not never, but I don't budget the way I used to, which was monthly, right? So I was so looking at the details every single month. And self-employment, financially, what that has taught me is you have to see things on a more annual basis, the most important numbers are that your net worth is going up, that you're paying, like saving and paying for your taxes. Like you, just your priorities shift drastically, like in the nitty gritty details of it. But I honestly just, I, I'm as really at this point where I've gotten to a place where my numbers aren't like, I, I try to make sure they're not attached to my self-worth in any way. And the biggest pieces around that being like, my income is going to fluctuate. I am not just going to be on an upward trajectory for the rest of my life. Like it's just, if I had a traditional career, that is the path that you would hope or you'd be trying to like work towards. I'm very comfortable with the idea that like some years I might earn a decent income. Some years it might be a bit less. And I trust, I have a lot more trust that it like I can ride that out. And, but at the end of the day, I like, I just don't think, think about it. And not in a way of like, I don't have to think about money. I still have to think about my money and I have to make sure that I'm saving for retirement, especially being self-employed. But I just don't let it like consume my thoughts in the way that I did before. I also don't have, like, I'm not on the track for FI in the sense that I don't have sort of a date that I hope I reach FI and and then I'm not going to work or anything. I'm like, I'm really in a fortunate position right now where I'm already doing the work that I would want to do if I didn't have to have like a traditional career. I'm also very much in a place where I don't know how long that will last, right? Like I don't know how many books you get to write or how long you get to have a career as an author. And so I'm just going to enjoy it while it lasts and, and not have finances be the thing that dictate my move. I'm very non-attached in general to the idea of being self-employed. If I had to get a job one day, I feel fine with that. So I'm just enjoying things as they are right now. And also being conscious of like, I had a, I had one year specifically where I did earn really good money and I was just really conscious of it. Like, okay, the, I do not need to spend it all. The best thing that I can do is save it so that like for the years that come up that I might not have a ton, that I'm okay. As your time thinking about money and wealth has curtailed. One thing that seems to have replaced at least your thought process is environmentalism. It was a piece Mm -hmm. of the book that I thought went well nicely with opting out and being aware and intentional. Talk a little bit about your interest in environmentalism and when that started. Mm. I don't think it actually started until I did the shopping ban. And that being first of all, recognizing how much stuff I got rid of and how wasteful that was, like how much stuff I had purchased and never used. So yes, of 
course, it's a waste of like financial resources, but it's a waste of actual resources that were pulled from the earth in some way or another, and that I never, ever used them. So I just didn't need it. So it started with that. I would say from there, learning things about sort of like what, where our clutter goes when we get rid of it. You know, I think a lot of people think that you take it to a thrift store and it just gets dealt with. And the reality is, I think the stat is right now, it's like only 10% of what gets donated to a thrift store is actually repurchased. And 90% of it ends up either going in the landfill or being shipped shipped off to developing countries because we think that they might want our crap. Like it, it's soup. And also the waste of resource in that in shipping it elsewhere. It's super interesting to learn just to like have a much bigger understanding of like the whole systems at play. Like from there, learning things about fashion and like how how bad, especially fast fashion is for the environment. It all of it definitely keeps me on the track of not wanting to buy things unless I absolutely need them. But that year, like when I was traveling, one of the things that came up for me was I got really uncomfortable with flying. And I thought about this after I'm like, I I started to get uncomfortable with it and then I flew home. <laughs> But I really got to this place where I was like, I don't want to be someone who's flying around all the time. Plane travel, like airplane travel is the worst thing that we can do technically as individuals. And honestly, I think that I think this stat's something like one transatlantic round trip flight can like wipe out all the things that you do at home in a year that you think is helping you know, like if you're, I'm not using plastic, I'm going zero waste. Like it can wipe out everything for what it's actually doing for the environment. And like starting to learn those stats, also being in the UK, um, it's where Extinction, Extinction Rebellion was born. And it was huge there, like 22, 2019. And it still is, but it was massive over there. And like, you could feel it in the news all the time. And just like in the presence of conversations, I was meeting people who were committing to never fly again. These were things that were not talked about among my friends in North America. Like we weren't there yet. We weren't quite talking about that stuff. And yeah, so I'm like, I'm at a place with it right now where I could see taking like one round trip flight a year. I mean, I don't know about right now, but (laughs) I can see taking like one flight a year. I don't feel great about it. And so that does make me think like in the long term, what will that look like? And I don't know yet, but I, I definitely trust that my, like, if I'm feeling this still, you know, and it's been almost a year since I've even been on a plane, I don't think it's going to go away. And I can talk myself out of it and say, you know, like that all the biggest companies in the world are the ones that are doing the most damage or things like that. And like, that can all be true. And still, I think individual choice, like uh, it's just a value thing. So if, if for me, it continues to feel like a thing, I don't know what travel is going to look like in the future, but it does feel important. I, and I also think that being grounded this year, one of the benefits of it is that, especially being in my hometown, which I do know well, is I have been able to take a closer look at like what is happening here and what our biggest problems are here in a way that I couldn't sort of when I was bouncing around. I think this idea of environmentalism really ties into a lot of the themes in opting out Mm. as well as hiking, as well as being intentional in your life. This idea of you pack in and then you pack out, right? You, Mm. when you go on a hike, everything you bring in, you bring out with you. It makes a lot of sense. So I clearly see your evolution of thought and why environmentalism would play into it. Kate, this has been a conversation I have been thinking about actually for years. The book is Adventures in Opting Out, a must read for anyone who's thinking about either making big changes in their life or just being more intentional about the way they do things. Kate, I'm going to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to know more? Hmm. Okay, so what's up next? Like big stuff, big stuff that I'm actually entering in a way where it's opt out related, where I'm sort of like testing the waters. So I've had a thought about going back to school and I have applied to go back to school. I don't know where it will lead. My thought is that in January, it would be really nice to just take one or two classes and see if I even like being a student because I might hate it. (laughs) So, yeah, so that is a potential opt out in a way. Would you be getting um, an MFA or what are you looking to do? 
ultimately, if I decided to go like all the way through school, I would actually, I'm interested in doing a master's in counseling psychology. Cool. And if, if, yeah, we'll just see, I'm leaving it at that is like, I might take two classes and be like, no, this is not for me. But I also think that those two classes will only teach me something. And yeah, that, that can never be a bad thing. So, but the best place to find me is on Instagram. It's really the only place I hang out these days. So just at Kate Flanders. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Kate Flanders. That's a wrap. What in your life have you opted out of? What have you left behind, even though it was difficult? For me, there is no question that leaving my profession, walking away from being a physician was the most difficult opt-out I ever did, and it was essential to my life. I had realized years ago that being a physician wasn't fulfilling my purpose, identity, and connections in the world. It wasn't filling my cup, so to speak. And I had never given myself permission to even consider leaving until I realized I was financially independent when I crunched the numbers. I knew that at least from an economic standpoint that I could leave. But as Kate Flanders talks about, opting out isn't always easy. And the process of stepping away from medicine took me years. I didn't know how to leave. Part of the reason was I wouldn't allow myself to opt out of this identity that I had created over the years of who I thought I was, of the way I identified with being a physician, of how I saw myself. But it wasn't just me. When I opted out of being a physician, I also left behind my family and friends and colleagues who all, in a sense, had invested in this idea of me as a physician. Think about it. My family, for instance, grew up cheering me on as I not only overcame a learning disability, but then went through high school and college, applied to medical school. They were there at all my graduations. In fact, I remember my medical school graduation and how proud my family was. This was not only my dream. It was our dream. Our meaning my family and friends and all those people who had supported me over the years. And part of the difficulty of opting out was I worried that, in a sense, I would be letting them down or losing them. Thankfully, when it comes to family, that was not an issue. We are incredibly close and... The likelihood of losing any of my family members was small, but there certainly were friends that I drifted apart from, colleagues, people who, looking back, the thing we had in common was our connection to our work, and I severed that connection. Listening to Kate, it's easy to forget that opting out is difficult, She speaks about it so clearly, and her arguments are so sound. It's easy not to realize that opting out takes a huge amount of emotional strength. Now, that doesn't mean we can't accomplish it. It doesn't mean that we can't leave behind those parts of our life that are no longer serving us. But it does mean that these things take time, that we have to be thoughtful I remember when I started to leave medicine, I relied on writing, on my blogging, my daily journal of accountability. Each day I would write out my thoughts, my theories, my mental gymnastics, all in attempt to better deal and cope and reason through this thing that I knew emotionally was right for me but didn't always have the words intellectually to express it. Specifically today, I want to tell you on New Year's Eve, as this episode drops, if you are contemplating opting out, 
I am here for you. I have been where you have been. We as the Earn and Invest community can support you. Come to the Facebook group. Tell us what you're opting out of. Tell us your fears and struggles. Here you will find a group of people who will support you because just this idea that you were interested in personal finance or maybe it's financial independence in itself, that interest is a form of opting out. We've opted out of the American dream script that more is better. We've opted out of this idea that we are helpless to control our financial futures. We all have practiced this opting out and we can do it together. We can support each other and we can help each other reason through why these opt-outs are right for us. That is the meaning of community. We all have to opt out of something or other in our lives. It's so much easier when we have the support to do it. It's so much easier when we can do it together. Here on the Earn and Invest podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. Have a great 2021. So that was exactly what I wanted out of that conversation. I hope you felt that that got to the nature of you, your journey, and the book. It certainly spoke a lot to me and my experiences. Oh, good. Yeah, so it's been, I guess, about two years now since you stopped doing medicine then. Yeah, so I what I did is I left... So I, I just started getting rid of things, right? So I was tired of my practice, so I stopped doing my practice. And then I was working at nursing homes only, and I got tired of that, so I got rid of the nursing homes. And then I got rid of nights, and I got rid of weekends. The only thing I kept is I am an administrative medical director for a hospice. And so I okay. do hospice work, which takes about 12, up to 12 to 15 hours a week. Okay. Um, and I don't see patients anymore. I actually help the nurses, chaplains, and social workers do it. So that was the only thing out of being a doctor I kept. Right. And my strict criteria for that is would I do it if they wouldn't pay me? And if the answer was yes, then I wanted to mm. keep it. If the answer was no, then I probably could find other ways to fill my time. And I think I've decided that this adds so much to my life and allows me to hold on to that part of the identity I really liked about being a doctor. Yeah. And then still pursue all sorts of other things. So it gives me a little structure in my life. I have a schedule every week, which probably is good for my brain. Um, mm -hmm. But then I have plenty of time to do things like this, which are more, much more my passion and and drive, you know. Yeah. So. I mean, you're a great host. You're a great podcast host. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really try to... I really try to get to each person's story and have a very unique conversation with them. With someone like you, it's easy, right? Because I have a book that's obviously uniquely you, but mm. um, I really want to get down to who you are and what you have to, to teach us. And I think that's mm. everyone, everyone we interact to who's gotten to this level has a really cool story if you search hard enough for it, right? So yes. I think the cool part is, is to have these conversations and I feel connected to you because I met you, then I read your book and I knew I wanted to have a conversation with you anyway. So it's, it's a nice connection for people who haven't, I haven't spent really any time with you. Right. We didn't yeah. really do a lot of deep talking if I remember correctly over at no. that camp five. I'm, so. I'm like, I can't even remember exactly what it was, but when you, you just gave us like you, you practiced a talk. Yeah. I gave it to us. I bawled my eyes out. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, it actually wasn't about me. It was like family stuff, but it was, uh, that was definitely a highlight of the weekend for me. So I'm glad. I would say it feels on um, being on the receiving end as a guest, it feels like you have stepped into what you are, are very good at also. I love public speaking. I like getting up. I like telling mm -hmm. stories. Um, it's taken me a long time to grow into that. Something I'm sure you understand completely, yeah. right? It's taken me a long time to let go of, denying it for years and years, trying to say that's not what grownups do, right? Grownups don't spend their time writing and some do, like they're really <laughs> successful, but everyone else goes out and gets a real job, right? Well, yes. <laughs> maybe. maybe. I, I happen to have the financial fuel in a sense. That's great. But it, it's the, the bigger question is, would I have done it if I didn't have the financial fuel? Like, would I have found mm. a way, which I think is somewhat what you're learning too, right? Is how do I find a way to do the things that align with who I am, yeah. but still make the finances good enough that I can keep doing it. 
Yeah. 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 Even talking about like income fluctuating, it's not like I'm going down to like making nothing some year, mm-hmm. but yeah, just the, the idea, like it doesn't have to always be this crazy upward trajectory. Like that just does not have to be the way. Yeah. It drives um, us a little crazy. I'm an achievement junkie. It's taken me a long time to learn how not to be. Yeah. And I struggle with that continuously. It's like, okay, it doesn't, I don't have to create the biggest, greatest or best. What I really need to learn how to do is enjoy this part, which is the creating yes. itself. That's yes. taken me a long time. So, As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.